Welcome to When We Speak, where we shed stigmas, say goodbye to shame, strengthen ourselves, and encourage others. I am your host, Tasha Hunter. This is a podcast where I am blending the intersections of race, gender, sexuality, faith, and trauma. If there is a topic that most people say we're not supposed to talk about, I'm talking about it because that is how we heal. We don't heal in silence. We heal by speaking out. So today's episode, I have uh, three women that I met on or that I became familiar with on Instagram, really because all of you are three women who have relationships with Black people and people of color and queer folks. Uh, And you're all, I guess, doing the work of becoming anti-racist, but but also folks who are, are on the same, maybe parallel journeys as far as deconstructing. I don't feel like, I don't know that I'm still on that journey. I feel like I have deconstructed. <laughs> it's done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yep, yep. Um, so anyhow, uh, I'll start with you, Jan, and then Marla and Becca, if you would please introduce yourself, state your identities and where you're located. My name is Jen Kinney. She, her, and I come to you from Detroit, Michigan. I'm Marla Taviano. My pronouns are she, her, and I am on um, Salaguadia and Congaree lands, which are now Columbia, South Carolina, named after a colonizer. <laughs> and I'm excited to be here, Tasha. I fucking love that you just said named after a colonizer. <laughs> I went from yeah. Columbus, Ohio to Columbia, South Carolina. Could not escape this man. Um, yeah, but I'll keep fighting him. <laughs> yeah, Becca. Lord. <laughs> uh, my name is Becca. My pronouns are she, her. I am in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, the colonized land of the Catawba. And um, full of just, we're a redlining city. We just love to redline and vote people out of their homes. Oh, thank you so much. Thank all of you for being here. I know all of your stories through through different. I've Becca, I've I've listened to so many episodes of your podcast. Uh, Jen, I've I've listened to you on all the platforms that you're on. Marla, I've I've read your book and of course follow all of you on social media. And so this this episode is really for people that that may not aren't yet acquainted with with who you are and and the work that you are doing since we're talking about deconstructing our faith today uh regarding being a christian and all that when do you when did you first recall questioning what you had been raised to believe and um and and marla i know you shared you just shared some of your story on uh our, our episode that we did together uh, but please, anybody that wants to chime in, when did you first kind of start to question, hmm, I don't know about this, or wanting to expand on who God is and, you, you know, or, or what you had been raised to believe? Go ahead, Jen. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, so I would say for me, really, um, I wasn't raised in the church. So I actually converted to what I call flat Bible reading fundamentalist evangelicalism, like when I was 25, there were things that didn't always sit like well with me. Um, 
but it was like, I really started to sort of break free from some of that and question things after listening to somebody talk about like the historicity of scripture and how to actually read scripture through a Hebrew lens. And that's when I started to really realize like, whoa, this whole American lens, this white lens that I've read through in this really flat, you know, uh, legalistic way. Hmm. Why, that, that feels a little off at this point. So for me, that's that's kind of when it started to chip away a little bit. Thank you, Marla. Yeah, mine was around, I'd say 2008, 2009. And like you said, I've, I've talked to you about this before, so people could go back and listen to that. But mine um, was mostly surrounding poverty. I read a book called The Hole in Our Gospel about how we say that the gospel is Jesus died for your sins, accept him, go to heaven, and everything's great. Meanwhile, people in the U.S. and around the world are starving and dying. And what are we doing about that? And and if you believe that um, just getting to heaven, saying a prayer and getting to heaven is what the gospel is, and you're letting people languish or die here on earth, then something's missing from your gospel. And it, it seems wild that I would discover that in, in like 2008. <laughs> I, I'm 46 years old. I've been around a long time. Like, and I, that just... I mean, I heard about people caring for the poor or whatever, but that to me was just very secondary to saving their souls. Um, but when I read that book, that just kind of, that was the start, I think, for me. Becca. Well, I um, have been in, it was raised Southern Baptist um, since in utero. Uh, my father was a Southern Baptist campus minister. And so... Um, I lived in that bubble and believed in those beliefs um, until my 20s. Mine wasn't so much a, I stopped believing. It it was more of a trauma event of being angry of what was not happening because of what I had been promised, which is also a very privileged lens um, to believe that I will be promised all these good things. Um, but it was probably... Uh, 2006 and in my later 20s where I started being like this isn't happening I've done all the right things I've checked all the right boxes and this God so for me deconstruction came before my anti-racism journey same yeah and Becca when you say things that you had promised that that strikes like my parts are come alive. And I remember thinking, you know, people will say, you know, if you pray, if you believe, if you have, you know, faith, the size of a mustard seed, yes, you know, these, these things will happen. And, and I remember thinking, but I've got the faith of a mustard seed. Like my, my faith is super tiny (laughs) and I'm praying and I'm going to the altar and I'm doing all the things and the simple things that I am wanting, which for me was community, family, love, safety, being free of abuse. That's some simple shit that I felt like, God, if you can't do this, I mean, come on. Come on. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, when I was, Tasha, you sent us the answers or the questions beforehand. And then when I was typing them out in my little Enneagram one heart, and um, I really started to think about, I think I started doubting when I was really young 
But my response to doubt was to be self-deprecating at my lack of faith. It was not to question the systems in place. I grew up in a very meshed family, um, very contained, very bubbled. I was very protected from the evils of the world. Uh, friends, you can't see my air quotes, but I'm air quoting the evils of the world. So um, in my story, there's a there's a big, long story, but my dad was a pastor who had an affair. And um, so there's a lot of points where it started breaking down for me. Marla, you, you named the, the hole in, the, in our gospel, the, the book that you read. Uh, Jen, Marla, Becca, I'm also wondering, who did you follow? Who did you read? And I asked this from a perspective of when I talk to people, whether it's my clients or just people that I know, and other therapists even, and they're asking, how did you start your deconstruction? But it was really little bit by little bit of me kind of side-eyeing some things. That was my first deconstruction. Like, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't through following anybody. It was like, hmm. <laughs> so for you, what, what, who did you, at the very beginning, who did you follow? Who did you read, if, if anybody? I'll go again. This is uh, Rachel Held Evans is who mm-hmm. I first started following. And she scared me at first because we were so very, very, very much alike. And we're both just really zealous about sharing the gospel with people at our, whether it was a public school or wherever we went or missions trips. Um, And when she started saying things that made complete sense and I knew how smart she was and I knew how dedicated she was. And this had been her whole life that I knew this wasn't someone just coming along trying to poke holes because I was good with those people. Like I could punch back, I, I had all the answers. But for her, she was just like me, the one with all the answers and then she was questioning. And so, yeah, she scared me at first, but then I thought, I just gotta listen. Like if she's wrong, great. But if she's right, then I need to know this information about that. And so she was the one that started it. And frankly, it was a lot of white people at the beginning, because like the deconstruction thing started for me before the anti-racism thing. And it it soon morphed into leaving a lot of those white voices behind kind of and, and moving in to listen to more black people and people of color. Mm-hmm. That's what was so interesting when I was making my list last night. I was like, oh, this is a lot of white people. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh, that's so interesting. Uh, For me, um, it was 10 years ago, uh, Brene Brown, uh, Gifts of Imperfection, because I had been conditioned that I was unworthy and what what, things were not happening because it was lack of faith. And so my self-worth was nothing. And as I started rebuilding and learn, not rebuilding, discovering who I am, I realized, oh, wait a minute. I know this. And what I'm learning is bullshit. This is not true. I, I have a knowing. When I, when I discovered my knowing, it changed everything which was a long, that sounds short and sweet. We're talking like a decade, 15 years, like it's not short and sweet. It's so interesting to listen to you guys talk about this because for me, like I came in really differently, I think. Like I Mm -hmm. came from practicing like indigenous spirituality because my dad raised me to identify with, you know, the, the small percentage of indigenous that he is 
And, you know, I went through so many different spiritual progressions and practices and religious practices and stuff. And so I'm just thinking about it. And it's like I started this deconstruction process before I had language for it. But mine was a little weird because I actually took a really sharp right turn and went uber fundamentalist for about six months, almost got involved in a cult. But what it did is it pulled me out of the institutional church and building and started kind of messing with my head in terms of like how to even look at and read these texts, interpret them, et cetera. And and that was kind of like the beginning for me. So when I really was at this place where I felt like I've really heavily deconstructed along in parallel with this concept of divesting from whiteness, as Keena Reed calls it, um, I I remember hearing about Rachel Held Evans and, and all of these people and like, oh, I wish I'd had access to even those resources at that time because. I didn't know anybody. I didn't know who those folks were, you know, like I knew Rachel Held Evans um, a little bit, but like I, I never really studied any of their work. It was this pastor by the name of Shane Willard who got me sort of pulled out of this arrogance and confidence that like white evangelicalism and fundamentalism is the only lens and I remember learning that like the book of Job wasn't viewed as an actual like true story, but a book of poetry. And I remember going to friends and being like, okay, so Job isn't a real story. Whoo, that makes so much sense because that story is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. and, and like to think that God's just letting, yeah. you know, the devil walk in and have his way with somebody like talk about like a twisted view of God. And so yeah. it's it's just it's interesting because for me, so much of my deconstruction, I almost feel like I did like in this really lonely way when I didn't need to, because there are so many great teachers and people. And I've since connected with so many. But the bulk of my deconstruction was just like kind of on my own, it felt like. So I just want to name that I may look really calm right now, but... <laughs> you just blew my mind with the whole Joe, the book of Joe being a, a a book of poetry, actually, because how many churches are preaching and have preached thousands, millions, maybe about having the faith of Job and that you can lose mm -hmm. all things, him and his nagging mm -hmm. wife. Yes. And, and, and because of his faith in God, he, he was granted the land, the animals, the, you, you know, he had more children, all of these things and that leads into some super serious spiritual bypassing right yeah yeah capitalism propaganda <laughs> yeah. yeah and it's a book of poetry <laughs> I love that, that fundamentalists and in flat bible readers use as and i don't know if it was the same way for you Marla and for you, Becca, like you may have grown up like that because I started talking to some friends who are Episcopalian and so on. And they're like, well, yeah, I've always known Job was a book of poetry. You fundamentalists believed that it was a real story. I was like, yes, <laughs> yes, we did. Every word. Pastor's kid. Like he and I looked yeah. at each other and I, I, I won't forget the moment. Like we looked at each other and we're both like, oh, what? <laughs> What is this? And this was only like five years ago. On my first date. Oh, sorry. Jen, go ahead. 
I was on my first date with my husband. He suggested, or he talked about how Adam and Eve um, was another, an allegorical story. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I'll never be able to introduce him to my parents. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I felt like a rebel. I, um, as I was listening to you all, I was just thinking, just depositing this idea in case anybody wants to, to take it. I feel like a book needs to be written an anthology, maybe we are all heretics. Um, <laughs> yeah. We are all heretics, and we share our story. Um, <gasps> Tasha, yeah. I love this. <laughs> we all share our deconstructing yes. journey. Yes. Um, so any of whichever one wants to take that on, but it, it also made me think about as a child, and I grew up in a, a really severely bu- abusive home, and in my in my alone time, I would read front to back the Bible. Mm. That's all I had. And I remember reading, you know, in, in church, uh, they would say uh, often that, that, that David was a man after God's own, own heart. And mm. I remember as a child reading and saying, I can, I can murder. I can, I can be uh, like a stalker, some kind of a, you, you know, pervert. I can, <laughs> I can, I can do all these things be a hitman. I can do all whatever. Yeah. And I can be a woman after God's own heart. Checkmate. I got it. Cause I'm going to sin a lot. I already knew it. So, and then reading about Paul who was before his conversion was a murderer. And I thought, okay, I can be an apostle. <laughs> I can do a lot. And so I don't think that the, the things that were supposed to be deposited into me by the Missionary Baptist Church that I attended, it just, it didn't land. I, it went another direction. So I was a young heretic, I think. And so anyhow, yeah. Well, speaking of David, a man after God's own heart, I've heard that many, many times from Trump supporters who are saying, well, David was this well, they don't call him a rapist, which is what he was, but he was yeah. and all these things. Yeah. yeah. Um, and saying, well, he's still a man after God's own heart. And more personally, my husband um, left me a year and a half ago and I found out he'd been cheating for four years. And then a friend, it was last year at some point, she texted me and said, what is this stuff on Facebook? Like my mother-in-law was calling him uh, like David, comparing him to David, a man after God's own heart, how he's like all of this stuff. And I'm just like this the Bible is weaponized. It's used for however people want to use it. It's used to, to hurt people. It's used to defend people. Like the whole Job thing, like you're saying, it's just, the Bible's got some great stuff in there, but in the hands of the wrong people, it is violent. It's Mm -hmm. just, I mean, it's violent in and of itself, but (laughs) yeah. yeah. Always been weaponized in this country from the day the, the colonizer stepped foot on the land it's been used as a weapon to control into as a free ticket, a conscious a mind free ticket in their conscious saying, Bible says it, I can do it. Let me rewrite this little thing over here about baptism. Or we'll just, you know, make that's what the Bible says too. Mm. And consider people citizens or not citizens. Um, yeah. yeah, it's always... Yeah. They're continuing the legacy of the founders of this country. Yeah, you yeah, know, and they are the good people. Not we're not the bad people. 
Yeah. It's really interesting because I'm sitting here thinking about two things. One, I want to mention Jamar Tisby's book, The Color of Compromise. So when I really like I'd sort of deconstructed, I'd left the institutional church. I was heavy into learning about the history of racism in the nation and getting my people and, and kind of journeying into that. And I remember like being wide eyed and naive with Christians with white evangelicals like before I had that language or we had that language and discussed that and like I was so angry after a very short period of time about how they were engaging me on this because I'm like Jesus justice this goes hand in hand the gospel that I'm reading the things that I'm reading like this makes perfect sense that if you love and follow Jesus, you would want to make sure there is equity for all people. And and I didn't understand the history of the church specifically in the United States until and I remember Jamar Tisby's book sat on my, you know, shelf here for like two and a half years and finally i read it one day because i was going to la and i was going to actually see him speak and i couldn't have him sign my book if i hadn't (laughs) read it so i'm like i'm reading it and i'm like oh my gosh i wish i would have read this years ago because it helped give me a framework and an understanding for exactly what you're talking about becca with colonization and all of that but then i want to take it in a totally different direction really quickly. There's a faith community that I started joining and being a part of over the last few years in verse. And one of the questions they ask people is, did you experience scripture as a liberative text or as an oppressive text? And I started to see that a number of the black theologians who were talking about their experience growing up, they all experienced it in this liberative way. And I was just like, what is this? What is this that that you can sit there and talk about experiencing this text in such a liberative way? Because I had experienced it in in just such a like oppressive way, like you were saying, Marla, you know, like using Mm -hmm. it to like keep women from speaking, you know, and and, and all of these different things. And I start that's where I really started to learn and understand so much more about white Jesus and white Mm -hmm. evangelicalism and Christianity versus a liberative, uh, decolonized view of the text. And I was like, okay, this and that's when I started really getting into uh, James Cone and reading um, M. Sean Copeland's book, uh, Knowing Christ Crucified, and that's where everything just like the things just ripped apart and opened up, and it was like, oh, I was so ready for it at that point. But yeah, just some things I'm thinking about there. Thank you all. Um, and then in your deconstructing phase or or journey and anti-racism work, um, what would you say is the cost of deconstructing and and what have you gained as a result? Marla, you wanna go first? I'll start, yeah. I think there's a lot, but um, the cost I would say is a couple of members of my family disowning me. And then the rest of them, I mean, there are some that I'm, I'm still close with. Um, the rest of them did not disown me per se, but just we're very, I'm estranged from them. They just don't, (laughs) we're on opposite wavelengths. I mean, they're still mired in the very things that, um, that I have long left behind. And 
a lot of them are Trump supporters. Like my grandpa is 95 years old and has a mega birthday party. I mean, it's just a, it's a, it's a lot. So um, that's probably the biggest cost to me. Um, but I would say that what I have gained, um, it, it, it's like, it, it can't replace it, but I would never, I would not go back. Like I would not. So specifically deep friendships with black women in particular and friendships with people who I've bonded over the same books that we're reading. Um, just having my, <laughs> my eyes open. Like when Jen was talking about how before, like I'm always jealous of the people who met Jesus or converted or something later in life. Like they got to miss out on the, <laughs> the couple decades of indoctrination or whatever. Um, but realizing how much I missed out on when I was put without my consent into a very tiny, tiny box of we are right, we are correct. Even other Christians, like Episcopalians or Lutherans or whoever, like they're not even right. We're the only ones that are right. Um, and by default, it's a bunch of white people in this box and in this little tiny corner of the USA. And it's, I don't even know how to describe it. Like when you're put in somewhere and then you, you don't even know there's a, like a whole world out there. It's like going to an amusement park and you hang out in the bathroom playing in the sink or something where you're just like, well, this is fun. And you don't know that it's like, oh my gosh, there are roller coasters. Mm -hmm. And so that it, I, to this day, I, not a day goes by when I am not so grateful and so aware of how much beauty I've, I've kind of gone past the, I'm so sad and I have so many regrets that I missed it for so long. I've been in it now long enough that I'm just excited about how much there is left. For example, I, I see people like Juneteenth is coming and people are like, here, read these books by black authors. And that's awesome. But it used to be that I could list how many black authors I'd read like in a little list. And now if someone were to say, pick five uh, like imagine if we say what are your five favorite books by white authors and you're like I've read like a thousand well that's how I feel now so it's like a it's just so much fuller so much richer so much more beautiful I could I, whatever it has cost it has just it doesn't it still stings sometimes but I, I could not would not trade it for me it's interesting because there has been a cost. It's cost me. My mother was my best friend until my late twenties. Um, and she thinks my husband took me away. Um, but it was really that she lives in such a state of fear that mm -hmm. um, she wants to help me all the time by bringing me back into the fold per se. Mm -hmm. um, I've had friends from, growing up who have reached out quote unquote to ask me if they can talk with me they can help me and the thing that I keep coming back to is I have more peace now in my life my life's not perfect but I have more mm -hmm. peace now in my being than I have ever had in my first 20 something years of my life I'm 45 um, and part of it is because I think 40s are amazing um, but <laughs> um but I have more peace now. And what 
there being on an anti-racism because part of deconstructing is the deconstructing of the white culture, which I believe for those of us who identify as white, we will always be deconstructing that forever. Like that, that doesn't end. That is hard. It's because I've been centered for so long. Um, it's depressing um, to realize that you have lived um, in a bubble of lies for so long, but the blessing is that you get to see a huge community. You get to see the, and have this connection with community that you never had because you're not, because you're learning, learn, I'm learning, I'm not there yet, to not other everyone else who doesn't believe like me, who doesn't look like me, the lie that we're all, that God doesn't see color, that we're all equal because none of that's true. And if we can't live in the reality of where we're at, then we're living in bubbles of lies. I think bubbles of lies is the title of that book that you want us all to write. (laughs) Yes. I love it. It's coming together. I can see it now. (laughs) Yes. How about you, Jan? What did you, what did you lose? And then what have you gained? There is, this is just the depth and breadth of loss and grief that you experience when everything that you stood firmly in just crumbles. It is tremendous. And I don't even know that it's something that I acknowledged as I was going through it, because at the same time, there's just so much beauty and expansiveness and things that I'm learning and, you know, like uh, just people that I'm meeting and in ways that I'm living my life, like Becca was saying that, you know, like just having such a deep level of peace. And again, I think this points to like where we're at in this process, like for me coming to my faith tradition later in life and then leaving it. It's like, I got to, I lived a whole lot of life before I became an evangelical and On some level, I would say that that might be what thrust me into the the safety and the the safe haven or safe feeling of, you know, these very strongly outlined rules and regulations and things like that. Um, But I would say like the thing that I really I feel I feel a profound sense of gratitude I would absolutely not have it any other way. Uh, you know, like every day I learn more, I meet more people, I hear from more fellow heretics. And, you know, and I just think sometimes like I would have sat like me 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, like I would have judged this person, you know, as be, it, not being a true Christian or not being, you know, whatever. But the thing that I'm left with, because I still identify as a person who follows Jesus. And so I feel this tremendous like burden to uh, I don't know how to word it exactly. But the thing that I think about is I have a lot of anger over the abuse that is happening in the church today. And, And I feel like I need to be a part of dismantling those abusive systems and confronting that. And so there's a weight that comes with that, if that makes sense. Um, But I'm just, yeah, just profoundly grateful and enjoying so much of what I've been learning and the people I've been connecting with and the way that love has expanded and grown and 
it just such relief. But then I look at people who are in this other place and I just think, oh, it does not have to be this way. You know, mm-hmm. I often tell my clients because I don't want them to be de- delusional, you know, of, about their healing process that on this journey of, of, of healing, you will grieve. You're going to lose some stuff. You're going to lose some people. Yeah. And you will fucking grieve. That, that, that's just a part of the yes. process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Be- because as you're changing the folks that were in our lives, they didn't agree to that version of us. Yeah. They didn't agree to these new insights. They didn't agree to this additional education and, and your heart expanding. They only, their contract says that, that they will take you, the person that they raised or the, or, or the person that, you know, whatever beliefs that they believe in. Yes. That's the version that they're, that's, that, that's who they agree to love. They didn't agree to love any other version of you. Mm -hmm. And that is fucking, that's hard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because then we really get to learn, unfortunately, that love is not unconditional. Not on this Mm -hmm. earth. What a lie. That's so good. And and so, and then the other thing, Becca, you you mentioned, oh, I just love that you mentioned Brene Brown, a social worker who was Mm -hmm. a part of your deconstruction. I'm like, okay, my therapist's heart was like, all right. (laughs) Brene Brown said on a a recent episode of her podcast, um, Unlocking, I can't remember the name of the podcast. Anyways. (laughs) Unlocking Us. Unlocking us that people will do anything to avoid feeling shame, even if it means even at the risk of hurting you. Mm. If it if I can't feel uncomfortable, you mean you want me to sit with the fact that 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 my my whiteness or white supremacy is an issue. You want me to sit with that maybe the Bible isn't literal. You want me to sit with the things that I've done wrong? Mm. No, I'll disown your ass before I do that. Yeah. And well, when I heard, you, yeah, go ahead, Becca. I was, well, one of the tenets of white culture, and also I just want to say when I'm saying white culture, I'm not, and yes, it applies to me, I'm white identifying, but white culture is actually a culture. It is a, process a thought it's a groan it's and so one of the tenets of white culture which this goes to Brene Brown is um but perfectionism perfectionism Mm -hmm. and so if a tenet of white culture to succeed air quotes again because I I think that's bullshit Mm -hmm. but to succeed in this society specifically the United States I'm speaking of because that's the society that I know to succeed in it means you are perfect. To succeed means we don't have shame. Mm-hmm. So when you have shame, the culture says you are wrong. Mm-hmm. You are nothing. Um, yeah. That is so also, good. Also, I wanted to throw in there, I should have said this and um, from the beginning. Part of my journey too is therapy. I've been in therapy personally for a long time and believe in it with my whole heart. Um, and I appreciate Tasha, what the work you do and I encourage everyone. And I know that there's resources and a privilege there as well. Oh, thank you, Becca. 
Um, and then I, you all have actually already answered my next question because I wanted to know if your deconstruction paved the way for your anti-racism work and the answer. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> yes. A hundred percent. A thousand percent. Yeah. And, and, and Jen, listening to you always, I'm fucking amazed at the conversations that you are having on behalf of white folks, educating white folks, mm-hmm. advocating for black folks, trying to put white folks in their place. <laughs> trying to teach them to use washcloths properly. Right. <laughs> oh my how's gosh. That, how's that going, Jen? <laughs> I'm getting in trouble. <laughs> Y'all yeah. got Jen's IG. Oh my gosh. Yes. Uh, is that, could we say that that's some of that good, tr- good trouble? Yeah, I would, I would hope so. <laughs> yeah, I think it's good trouble. It's what I, mean, I endeavor toward some good trouble. Yeah. Yeah. But in terms of like your relationship, even with, with queer people, um, or, and reading, reading queer authors, um, or authors that are in the LGBTQ plus, you know, community, was that uncomfortable or, or, you know, did, did you kind of battle with, with that at, at any point in your life? It was a relief. Once I was deconstructed, I'm like, oh, I can love all my queer friends. Like I was so relieved because I had been heartbroken for so long when I had friends who were queer and growing up and I'm just, I would, it would just tear me up that my belief system said they were going to hell. Um, it was devastating, um, as an emotional feeler, empathic type of personality. Um, and for me also, uh, it gave me the freedom, um, when I turned 45 years ago to accept who I am, which is bisexual. Mm. Um, I love that. I love it. Marla Jan. Yeah, I, my experience with my queer friends is they are, I'm not going to say the most, but the, like the most, maybe the most forgiving community as a whole. And I've, I've, with so many groups that I have ostracized or thought were sinners or was harming intentionally or unintentionally, just the way that they have embraced me knowing what I used to believe, like knowing that I believed that being queer was a sin, that I believed that it was an abomination against God, that they needed to pray that away, that they, that they chose that lifestyle. All these things that were drilled into me that I believed for so, so long. I, I do think part of it is that so many of my queer friends also had internalized homophobia or transphobia because they too had been taught that or or they're Christians. I mean, I, I don't know what percentage of my queer friends are Christians and what, and what percentage aren't, um, but the forgiveness has come from all around, no matter whether they are Christians or not. And that's also probably due in part to the fact that um, it, it's not just Christians who, who are harming queer people. I mean, people who they're, it's universal. Um, but just that gift, like, I don't take that lightly at all that someone would forgive me and want to be a friend to me and, and trust me after who I used to be. And, um, yeah. And I just, I don't know, again, it goes back to the, the beauty of, 
I'm just, wow. Like my, my queer friends are some of the most amazing, beautiful, brilliant people on the planet. And I just, like, I just love, like, I love, this is Pride Month, I love it, it's like, <laughs> which every month is Pride Month, the Black History Month, I don't know, I just, I just want to celebrate, like, my thing is, instead of, like, hate the sin, love the sinner, or whatever, or I'll love you, even though you're this, or even, or I'll, in spite of, I just want to celebrate all the things about people that other people have either put down or that you don't, I, I don't like you because of this, or I can't accept you because of this. And not, and I know my queer friends are not just like their sexuality or their gender identity is not the only thing about them. And it's a big part. And I just want to celebrate that. Like, look how cool this is that you are, that this is who you are, or that this is who you're figuring out that you are. Um, because that's a, that's a journey too. When you are told for decades that that part of you is wrong and bad and needs to be gone like all the other quote unquote sins in your life, then you've got to figure out who, who am I? Um, and so I love watching people become who they really truly are, queer or not, um, just who, who am I deep inside? Who have I always been and wanted to be but I wasn't allowed to be? Um, because of my gender or the color of my skin or um, my sexual identity, whatever it is. I just want everybody, I mean, that's how we're going to be whole and happy is if we can be ourselves. This world, this country is not a safe place for many, 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 many people to be the whole of who they are. And so that's what I want for, for all of us. Thank you. I don't know that I can add much because both of you have said so many things that just resonate really deeply with me. But I was always a part of a church that, you know, sort of dabbled in being affirming, but not quite affirming and, and wrestled a little bit with trying to figure out where they stood and being a part of a community that is fully affirming, celebrating has been so healing for me, which has been really surprising, right? Because I would think as like a cis woman, like, like how, how would I necessarily find healing in being part of an affirming community? But it's been so healing. I've learned so much about love and good news and gospel and God and all of that from queer theologians and my queer friends. And it has been like I, I still just sit in it and revel in the openness, the freedom. Mm -hmm. And I feel honored and privileged to be able to be a part of community with people who like absolutely have every right to be like, you know, nah, you know, we, yeah, we know yeah. how you felt and thought. And I just like there there's so much grief that I have when I think about the church in the way that the church has and continues to behave and treat um, queer folks. And it's just like I, I just again, am so grateful that I get to be a part of a fully affirming community that isn't grappling mm -hmm. with anything, you know isn't isn't like oh well do we or don't we so yeah it's just been a beautiful healing 
process for me to be able to be a part of. Thank you. I, I was just thinking, um, I recorded a podcast right before this and, and we're, we're talking about sexuality and probably because I'm now in my forties, I'm noticing many, many, many women um, or people who are late in lifers who are coming out later in life. And it's mostly because we didn't even know that we had other fucking options. Like we, <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yep. <laughs> yes. It's like we were just you're supposed to be hetero. You you marry a man, you make you know, if you're a man, you marry a woman. And and we didn't know that. And and so now it's like, oh wait. Right. <laughs> right. I, I, I don't ha- I don't have to go that way. I don't, I, you mean I don't, I don't have to be straight? <laughs> you mean I could be happy? Amen. I can be free. <laughs> I can be happy. I can find some joy. What? I, no. Yeah. So I think I think um, some of y'all hetero folks are hetero not by choice. It's 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 by force. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, but anyhow, uh, in terms of, of of God, who or what is God to you today? I'll start. Um, I don't know. If I talk about God, (laughs) it's mostly, I have been saying mama God for a few years now. Um, I think it's like an attempt to counterbalance all those decades of thinking of God as he and his father. And I just read a book, um, This Here Flesh, um, why is it by Cole Arthur Riley, and she's a black woman who talks about at the beginning that it's still very difficult for her to get that image of God as a as male out of her head. She's been working on it a long time, and he's just still in there. <laughs> and I think about all the things that we've been conditioned, and for how long. And so I don't know what the journey looks like for me to get a male God. And like Christina Cleveland talks about white male God, like all one word, lowercase white male God. Like that's because that's, I mean, I might say, oh, I don't, I don't think God's white. I like, he's not, but, and, but it's, that's what's in, it's in my head. So I specifically say mama God, even though I don't necessarily believe God has a gender, just because I'm trying to un like get it, <laughs> get it back a little bit from where it, it used to be. But when you think about even in the Bible, when it talks about male and female both being created in the image of God, and then that has to mean that there's male and female in God. So I've I've read some beautiful things about God even being trans, like more that's that's more true to God's nature than any gender at all, if we're gonna put some kind of identity on God. And but as far as like what do I believe in God? Like I used to believe God was sovereign and knew everything and wanted my good and would work everything out. I've just seen too much. Like I've seen too many people pray their hearts out to God and there's no answer. There's no fix. You look back in history, the the violence that Christians inflicted on people and, and God was silent and the enslavers are thanking God for their all the property he has blessed them with. And the enslaved men and women are 
praying for their freedom and God's not answering them. So I don't know. That's my final answer. <laughs> I do not know. <laughs> for me, it's a, it's a tricky relationship, um, whether it's to even call on God. Um, and for me, it's a, it's a, it's trauma triggers or sprinkles. So I currently, I, I like to give God female pronouns because that makes me feel more safe. Mm-hmm. than um the male pronouns but one thing that has helped as far as gendering god is i taught my children and have taught my children that god does not have a gender and so when i subconsciously say god and use a male pronoun my daughter will correct me and say no mommy <laughs> god does not have gender don't say he and so that i have my own little uh <laughs> little reminder with her um i i think I believe that one of the reasons we are so disconnected as human beings and from God is because we're disconnected from our the creations that we are. Mm-hmm. And I definitely believe, like, I don't know, like, I'm getting all nervous, which is my trauma in me telling me that I'm about to say something that's totally wrong, which is not true, um, that we are God and that because we're connected and it's all connected. And I think that's how we miss God. It's because we don't see ourselves. Um, We don't see, we don't sit with the energy that we encompass. We don't breathe it in. Because when we do, we have a knowing, we have a deep knowing. So that's where God is for me. Just want to pause and kind of like take that in. Because that really resonates a lot with me, Becca. Um, You know, as I'm sitting here thinking of just like what words come to mind, you know, what things, images, moments. And I feel like God is in all of these things. And so you talking about God in us and us as God and how disconnected we are from that by being disembodied. That's such a powerful idea to sit with. And, you know, I think about like, for me, God is in connection between people. God is in like, where do I feel hope? And I feel hope in connection with other people, in story, in air and breath and water and wind and all of these things. And so just to think of God in this very broad collective but also those moments where i experience joy and purpose and peace um and to me that is god and let me honor that wisdom was first birthed in me from dr robin henderson espinoza who is a trans queer activist um uh, sorry, trans um, Latinx activists. And so I just want to acknowledge that that wisdom is something that I learned from and gleaned from that I didn't just birth that out of my own mind and brain right at this moment. Um, it has been a journey. That really is, this is really in alignment with, with what I believe. I believe that God is in all of us. I, I think it's it's weird when we say, okay, God blessed me with this car but God didn't heal this sick person or didn't, didn't end homelessness or war or, or racism or all the, the atrocities that are happening. Yeah. It's, 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 
and, and when I think about that, I think that when we were created by God, we, we do have the power of God and, and it's up to us to heal and to restore and to do the things that we're praying to God to stop or to, to, to do. Mm. It's, it's in us. We can heal people of all diseases, but there's no money in healing. There's only money in staying sick. And so that's maybe a lot, I guess I won't get on my soapbox about all that, but, but I do believe that God is in all of us. Mm. And if we're living in, in an embodied state and we know who we are, then we walk in that power, whatever that yes. is. Yes. Yeah. I think as Christians, I was always taught, and I know some of the people that disown me believe this very firmly, that you die to self. And it's like this whole, I am wretched, I am a worm, nothing good in me, like Christ in me is the only good thing. Without him, I am nothing, like on and on and on and on. And to the point where not even wanting to find out anything about your personality or your Enneagram number or who you are or what you like or what brings you joy because it's it's not about me. It's not about me. Less of me and more of God. Like on and on and on. Like I have journal after journal with all that shit. Like completely just all. And the idea, like I love that, that to know God, get to know myself and I will know God. And if God is truly like omniscient and omnipotent and all the omni omni everything and ev then god is in every single person and manifests diff differently in each one of us and to know god fully is to know diverse people and like how can i get to know god if i only know the people just like me then that means i know this part of god like i don't know all the other parts of god and I guess, yeah, like if I want to say, when have I felt really close to God? It's the more I, I learn about myself, the more I uncover, the more I, instead of sacrificing and laying down everything I want and everything, like give it all to God, use me, God, or what, like all of that, it's finding God inside of me, like finding out what, if I can be the very best, most complete whole me, then that's the best way that I'm going to know and experience God. And what's interesting is I have, I'm learning that the more I find out about who I am and more I have peace about who I am, the less I have a tendency to center myself. Mm, yep. Like the, what I was taught is, oh, you're going to fight. It's, it's going to be all about you. It's going to be just so selfish and not about God and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, that's actually the opposite is what's happening. Mm. And, and that's what I know. In white cultures, it's like, well, it's, you know, we have this theory that it's about the collective, but it's not because we haven't learned who we are to be a part of a community. Yeah. And we don't know community. We're taught individual and learning who you are is an individualization. It's learning how to be in community. Mm. That is so true. The and and I wrote about this, I think, in my memoir, or or and I know I've talked about it on podcast. That whole we're nothing but filthy rags, you know, and and all of these self-deprecating, or I don't know if it's self-deprecating, but uh, it, it, you know, this. Well, that works when you're when you're in the pulpit, 
and you're about to preach a, a sermon, which is most of the time when they, they would say these things. But I never hear more of you, God, less of me when it comes to rights, when it comes to guns, when it comes to land, when it comes to gasoline, <laughs> um, <laughs> when it comes to the Hispanic population, um, uh, when it comes to, you, you know, it, it, anything else. It's that stuff is, is used when it's when it's, it's used for control, it's used for control. Yeah. Yep. And, and when yep. it's sexy in church, you know, just something to sound yeah. good. To, <laughs> you know, this, 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 this fake humbleness. Mm-hmm. But how come we don't hear less of me, God, more of you when it comes to buying that AR-15? Mm-hmm. Because they're not operating out of that. They're operating out of fear. I truly believe yeah. that is the root of it all is fear. Mm-hmm. But the Bible says Fear is not of God. So I don't quote, have fear, bullshit. That's it. The whole belief system is rooted in fear because they know that fear controls. And I I really think, I believe in my core that that, it's that simple. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. Is there anything about faith or God that you at this point in your journey still wrestle with? Yeah, all of it. <laughs> no, I, I feel like when you were saying you've gone past the deconstruction um, and moved on, that was my goal. Like, I was like, yeah, this is the year that I'm done. I moved on. <laughs> um, I'm sure that I'll be doing it um, to some extent for a long time. But I think I've just gotten to the place where I, if I don't believe the Bible is literal and I'm going through a lens of love now, then it's the most, whatever is the most loving thing, then then that's simple. So if if you're asking me to do something or believe something and it's harmful to someone, it's not loving to someone, I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what your church says. I don't care about any of that anymore. So I'm past that part. But yeah, just trying to figure out where where to go from, from here. And also I've, um, one thing I'm wrestling with is a lot of my black friends and i would say maybe some asian and latinx friends too that are um speaking to the deconstruction movement that is largely white and how um it oftentimes does not involve dealing with white supremacy and and racism i don't ever want to get to a point where i'm like you should probably deconstruct like i did because i have got all the right pieces and i'm i'm doing it right no i i'm i don't i'm not saying that but leaving that part out like it, you you absolutely cannot like they are absolutely right anyone who is saying that to white people you you cannot leave that out and you oh, do need to so listen true. to 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 voices of color and I have to, my, my personal thing that I need to work on, I cannot just throw out a Bible, throw out this and say, Christianity is stupid. I don't want, when I am really just referring to the white evangelical Christianity that, that I was a part of, and I cannot discount the, the faith, like, of, like, say, Lisa Sharon Harper, for example, wrote a story about her, her ancestors all the way back to when they were enslaved and the, the faith that they held on to and all of that. I can't look at that as a white woman and discount that and say, that's crap. They should have gotten rid of that. That That is a different, it's not the same. And that's not my place. Um, so so the, the thing I need to do is like the whole gather the my white people and 
and make sure they can see that the decolonization, the white supremacy, that whole piece is, is a part of it. And so key. leave everybody else alone and or listen to them or, or whatever. Oh, you're going here, Marla. I'm getting fired up. <laughs> and I know we're probably Take it away, Jen. To a close. <laughs> I was like, go, go, go. I, I just want to say, like, I'm grateful that I didn't have the gurus. I'm grateful that I didn't get mm, caught up in the yeah. books and the podcasts and all of that stuff when I was on my journey, because in parallel, I was going through what I was actually calling at the time deconstructing white supremacy and deconstructing whiteness. So I was using that language on my what people would call anti-racism journey. And so I kind of like I would get into these deconstructing spaces and I'm like, this doesn't feel right. You know, there's a mm -hmm. lot of patriarchy. There's a lot of same tools, different language. So it's like, great, you've left behind white evangelicalism, but you haven't left behind whiteness. And so you mm. see a lot of these people speaking who are just perpetuating white supremacist ideology and language. And uh, I mean, the people, I won't name names, but some of them, I'm just <laughs> like, no, 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 no. And I love your point, Marla. It's so important because you know, because we as white people often see whiteness as normative. Right. So like mm -hmm. evangelicalism, it, that's why I'm trying to name it as white evangelicalism, because, yeah. you know, like otherwise we just think, oh, well, this is normative. So I'm leaving this behind, I, I, you know, and and this is the experience everybody has. But for me to be able to hear the stories of black folks who are saying like, no, I experienced my, you know, like I experienced the Bible in a liberative way from the beginning. That was mind boggling to me in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then I started to understand it's because it was my white lens that couldn't yeah. see that there was another way to even look at scripture or experience scripture or any of that. And so I think that is so essential because these deconstruction spaces are same shit, different name. You know, like, OK, great. Now, you no longer believe the Bible's literal and like maybe you don't believe in God or whatever. But like if you are not doing this in a decolonizing fashion, I think Joe Lumen has talked about this a lot. Like it's just toxic, just as toxic. Yep. Trauma begets trauma. Becca, for you, what is is there anything about God that you're still wrestling with? I think for me. I'm really at peace with what I believe and I know what I believe, but there's also, I still wrestle with a deep sadness mm. for the truths that I clung to and tried to make sense of. I think the hardest part for me is that I currently, what I choose um, to acknowledge and believe is that Jesus was a person and a radical and a justice seeker. But as far as the supernatural relationship, the atonement, I have let that go. But there's a sadness in that for me. And I think it was because I had a very emotional connection to that belief. Also, I think part of it is probably some guilt, if I'm honest with myself, because um, I did evangelizing with that belief. And I led people with that belief and mentored people with that belief. It's, it's more of a wrestling of being at continued peace. Because some our knowing that we've had for so long, you know this, 
it's a muscle. It's built into our cognitive pathways. And it's not something that disappears overnight. And this work of deconstructing and anti-racism work, it is work. And like we talked about before, you will grieve, you will lose some things. And so I'm wanting to know from each of you, what is in your self-care kit? Looking at you, Jen, because you spent a lot of time getting folks straight, arguing with folks, listening. (laughs) What is in your self-care kit? I am horrible with self-care. This is a concept that I am in therapy, struggling through and really working on experiencing. And you'll see me on a regular basis on social media saying, I don't know who needs to hear this, but I do. It's okay to rest. Right. And, and just, so for me, I love talking to people and connecting with people, cooking, cooking for people. And because of this pandemic, I haven't been able to really do that. So I'm hoping to step into a season of that again. Um, But for now, popcorn and cheesy British like murder mysteries, (laughs) Mm. music and dance. Um, Those are just some really basic things that I I try to do in terms of self-care. But my friend Naya has been talking to me about soul care and Mm. that has my mind open on an entirely new level. So that is why I'm in therapy and journaling and, you know, and working through what does it look like to even go beyond that sort of superficial self-care into a deep soul care. So yeah, I'll stop there. Yeah, that's a loaded question for me too. And I, um, books are my thing. And so I, I just, I love to read. I love, I love books. I love to photograph books for bookstagram. Like I'll go to Goodwill and get on the 50 cent rack and get fabric that matches the covers of my books. Like that's kind of my, <laughs> I'll buy flowers and, and photograph them with the books. Flowers have been a self-care thing for me, buying cut flowers and arranging them. Like behind me, I have these little, like old like spice jars with little flowers it's just beautiful I love the beauty of that um I I like (laughs) I don't rest very well either and so when I unexpectedly became a single mom like right after we had moved back to the states from Cambodia and I had we had no I had no money like literally zero money and So that's been hard for me. And I finally got to a point where I have enough money right now. And this summer I have made this choice that I have set an amount that I need to bring in. I do self, like I'm self-employed, set an amount for June, July, and August that I need to bring in. And once that I hit that, I'm stopping. I am not trying to save up in case something terrible happens. I am not trying to do, I am stopping And I'm working on my own writing, which is what also is self-care for me. When I can write my own story, when I can tell my own things that have happened to me, like the the book that I published last year that people just say to me, oh, that's like, that's how I feel. I resonate with that. And I know, Tasha, I talked to you about that in your book and how getting the, the hard work is getting it into people's hands. But then when people read your story, like... I did not have an experience anything like yours growing up. And yet somehow 
it resonated with me so deeply in so many ways. And it made me brave to want to tell my own story. And that's what people have said my story has done for them. So that to me is, is self-care, getting the stories out, getting the feelings out, um, working through healing. For me, it's a couple different things. Um, it is in this season of life, um, therapy. Therapy is very um, important. And it is also, sometimes I just have to go outside and stick my feet on the grass um, and ground myself. Uh, there is a jasmine vine that I will go and um, guide in and out of our chain link fence. And, and then also writing. Um, recently have joined a writing circle and that is an outlet for me. And I um, find that I enjoy it. Um, so it, it's new. It's hard for me to say that because, you know, I, I was told different things all my life about my writing. And so like, it's it's a newfound joy and newfound self-care. And I think that's also important. Self-care can change and evolve. Mm-hmm. For sure. Um, this This work and this, trying to step into like who we really are and all of these things, it's, it's a lot. And we do have to focus a lot on how we care for ourselves. And then, and then also making sure that we're intentional about community care and, and, and making time to have people around us that love us that ask nothing of us, that just love us, care about us, people we can laugh with, smoke with, drink with, dance with, um, have deep conversations, light conversations, just that community care is important. You know, assholes live forever. They don't have near the amount of stress <laughs> that, that, that other folks have that aren't assholes. And so you're doing this heart-led work. Your heart, I'm listen, you got to take care of it. Mm-hmm. Now, if you were an asshole, I wouldn't give you that advice because literally <laughs> <laughs> they fucking go on. They got lives. I mean, yeah, that's so true. Ooh. It is the most evil bastards. It's like you ain't dead yet. <laughs> but it, but if you're the kind of person that's given the quote unquote shirt off your back, mm. your heart's going to stop. I mean, quick. It's yeah, that heart work is heavy. I'm so mm-hmm. I'm just this is purely just a random curiosity question because I've been listening to Atlas of the Heart by Brene Brown and they're talking about the effects of loneliness and so loneliness and assholes. I'm like, how does that work? Because you got to be lonely in there with your assholeness, like, but yeah, you still live. Maybe it's just the evil part. I don't know. <laughs> this is unrelated a little bit. But I was, I made this comment to um, Marcy Alvis Walker of Black Coffee White Friends. We we were just kind of talking about some stuff. Every asshole, every racist, every, every oppressor, every tyrant, terrorist in our history, to your point about loneliness, they went home to somebody and somebody was making love to them. Somebody was cooking their meals, ironing their clothes, mm-hmm. making sure that they were nice and fed and comfortable for the next day so that they can oppress and hurt other people. They're not you lonely. Know, but you know, that person was lonely. Maybe. I think. Maybe. I don't know. 
I don't know. Because desperation keeps you where you're at. Now that's a whole sermon. <laughs> and that's not to judge that person where they're at, but when you're living from that area, as you know, I get this from counseling, survival, when you're moving in a space from, you're moving around a space in survival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know I just kind of went off on a tangent, y'all. So I apologize for that. <laughs> um, so some fun questions, because we've talked about all the heavy stuff. What is one song on the soundtrack of your life or one artist that would be featured on the soundtrack of your of your life? I, I'm going to say Girl on Fire by Alicia Keys, because I just, that's how I, like, I feel like I'm coming into my own. I'm a single woman mom at 46 and i'm gonna do this like i'm just here we go i'm i'm lit up and ready. <laughs> i'm ready to take on the world so for me it is a someone i was just introduced to in the last year and their name is vincent um and vincent um actually has did a single for uh queer eye season five on netflix but the song is called Be Me, Be Me. It, it, it's just phenomenal. And you can find it on any Spotify. No, sorry, don't go to Anywhere you find music. <laughs> don't want to support Spotify. Um, but yeah, so it's just, it, it fills you with a sense of your belonging, which is what we've been talking about too. This is a hard one for me. And because of course, at the last minute, I saw the question, I'm like, oh, this is not long enough to decide. But the the song that just came to mind and a band that came to mind is King's Kaleidoscope. Um, there's an album, The Beauty Between, and there's a song, Sticks and Stones. Um, and those resonate a lot with me right now mm. in this moment. Another difficult question, maybe. If you were going to put a bumper sticker on the back of your vehicle, you were going to create a bumper sticker, what would it say? I have so many ideas. I have the patriarchy. Okay. That would be one. Patriarchy. I love it. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Um, Sort of, but not really. But uh, I would say there's just this idea that I had a while ago, and it's um, to err is human, but to do the work to dismantle systems of oppression is divine. That would be my my bumper sticker. I may make some mugs a- or shirts at some point <laughs> that say that. Uh, so I went, I have a few, but um, the serious one would be never stop evolving um, because that actually like feeds me this evolution to grow and learn more. Uh, but the fun one would be um, Karen on board. <laughs> um <laughs> And then one that says, I stop for racists um, because, come on, let's talk about it. So, yeah. <laughs> wow. I think I would just have the word love because I have so many words. Like Jen's bumper sticker was kind of long. And I, I feel like mine would be like <laughs> paragraphs <laughs> because I have so much I want to include. So I'll just do the love and then um, we can go from there. Okay. And then last question um, for folks who are listening in and they're not following you yet. Where do they find you online? If you're my family, do not come looking for me. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> Definitely Ooh. don't look for me on TikTok. Um, so I am Jen Kinney I, on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. Mm-hmm. And I have a podcast that I have not done yet this year called Story Power Podcast. And Tasha was a guest on it. I will be kicking off a new season, maybe in the next six months. <laughs> mm-hmm. I am Marla Taviano on Instagram and Twitter. And then I also have white girl learning on Instagram. I had big plans to start TikTok. Um, my Marla Taviano 75, I think it is, is just sitting there with, <laughs> with nothing on it. Um, and my friend just made me a website. It's me, Marla.com. I had Marla Taviano dot com for years it expired uh, my husband was my ex-husband is the web designer so that expired and now it's a poker site or a casino or something so don't go there it's it's me marla.com and yes my book is unbelieve poems on the journey to becoming a heretic and you can find out about that there it's full of bumper stickers in there things that i would write on my bumper you can find me um on instagram twitter facebook and TikTok, um, it's at Becca Epley, and I made up how you spell Becca, it's B-E-C-K-A, um, Epley, E-P-P-L-E-Y. Um, I also have um, Where Do You Writing, um, my blog is Becca, B-E-C-K-A-Epley-E-P-P-L-E-Y.com. Make sure you put the dash in because I also let my domain lapse. And if you go to the one without the dash, you're gonna find some naked pictures. <laughs> is it you <laughs> uh, no no it's not um, someday but not today uh, um, I also um, have the privilege of being a co-host uh, with Tommy Allgood and Olivia Bethay um, we have the permission to be podcast um, you can go to permission to be podcast.com and find all our episodes um, which in the fall hopefully Tasha will grace us with her presence and um, then um, we also, you can find Permission to Be Podcast on all the social medias as well. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. And I would love to be a guest. Uh, this has been such uh, uh, just, you all have just really filled my heart. And I'm so grateful that you said yes to being interviewed. And yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, thank Tasha. You. <laughs> thank you yeah. for the work. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for listening to When We Speak. Follow me on Instagram at Tasha Hunter LCSW. If you haven't done so yet, please rate, review, and follow me on iTunes and share it on your social media. If you want a copy of my book, What Children Remember, it is available on Amazon. Until next time.